Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. BC's 2 million vaccine milestone with a focus on the Surrey hotspot. That is a very different thing to target a community with hundreds of thousands of people. And travel road checks begin. If you hit the highway, it better be essential. Innocent victims of gang warfare. I would have never in a million years thought this would happen to our family. A widow's warning as bullets fly in the lower mainland. And fighting for a very special farm. It's like my second home. Why this sanctuary is in danger of disappearing. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. COVID-19 travel checkpoints are now set up on four highways in the province. RCMP are out to ensure all non-essential travel is stopped in line with the current health order. John Waugh is live near Manning Park tonight with more on the checkpoints and the consequences for rule breakers. John. Well, Chris, as far as starts go, it seems like many are getting the message. This road check along Highway 3 in the Manning Park area has been set up since about 4 o'clock. And so far, not one person has been turned around. Now, if you look behind me, you can see everything is in place to stop all recreational traffic coming from the lower mainland and Fraser Valley to make sure it's essential travel only. Now, leading up to this road check, there are several warning signs and areas to make a U-turn. Once motorists get to this point, expect to be asked for identification, home address, and reason for travel. If police deem that's not essential, they can afford someone to turn around or face a fine. Now, there are four locations where you can expect to be stopped. Highway 1 in the Boston Bar area, here on Highway 3 around Manning Park, Highway 5 in the Old Toll Booth area, Highway 99 in the Lillooet area. Here's RCMP Staff Sergeant Janelle Shoyet. The goal here is not to be putting out fines. Really, the goal is to encourage people to stay local. So that's what we're doing. We're asking people to turn around and return to their home base. If, you, if a person would refuse to return around, they could be served with an Emergency Program Act fine up to $575. All right, John, RCMP had no problem letting everybody know where they would be set up. Have they told us how long they're going to be out there? Well, Chris, RCMP say they're going to take a flexible approach and they are going to start with a rotational basis, but they are going to be willing to set up road checks in different locations, different directions at different times, depending on the level of concern. And as you said, they're going to try to give the public an indication of where they will be, but do not expect specifics. The message is do not try to beat the system, just stay close to home. Chris? Definitely could be a good deterrent. We'll see, though. Thanks very much, John. That's John Wall. Well, while those of us who live on the coast may not be able to visit the interior, no such restriction exists at our eastern boundary. That's raising some eyebrows, especially since Alberta is the North American COVID hotspot. Richard Zussman has that part of the story. 
It's a familiar sight along British Columbia's eastern border. License plates from Alberta with Albertans behind the wheel. Uh, it's not too bad for us yet. Nobody's bothering us. We, we own property here. Travel contributes a very low percentage of COVID cases in B.C., but recreational travel does contribute a high percentage of stress, especially now as Alberta is Canada's COVID hotspot. Certainly from the perspective of non-essential travel, it's concerning uh, with the May long weekend coming up and those that want to come and recreate in our area, it is concerning. We would really ask those people to reconsider. Workers are still going across daily, key to the economy. And now the B.C. Liberals are putting out an idea to ensure workers can come, but make it a little tougher for non-essential travellers. Well, I don't think it's unreasonable, and people have certainly been raising this with us, that if you are traveling from Alberta to British Columbia, that there may well be questions asked. The B.C. government adamant that ticketing Albertans coming here would be unconstitutional, and without that power, any stop would be ineffective. If you're having people asking someone where they're going at the border, it really does need to be uh, people with authority, i.e. the police. The province's goal is to crack down on recreational travel. The reminder is not to be too quick to judge why someone may be in B.C. I mean, if you're pulling a motorhome, you might be a worker who's trying to relocate out of the worker accommodation facility. The last piece is personal responsibility, and every one of us needs to do the right thing. And I know that that's been a challenge for um, some of our neighbours, but I just don't know how much more clear to say it. We cannot enforce our way out of this. And it also goes both ways. BC mayors asking their residents not to go to Alberta, mentioning specifically those trips saving the task to Costco. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Some encouraging news from health officials today. We hit a milestone passing the 2 million vaccination mark. And here's a look at today's numbers. We have 694 new cases bringing B.C.'s total to 133,619. Just over 6,800 of those are active. There are 457 people in hospital, 154 patients in ICU. Both those numbers are lower today. And sadly, one more person has died. Also, yesterday, we set a one-day vaccination record, 52,266 doses delivered. It has been one of BC's COVID hotspots since the start of the pandemic. And today, new measures have been announced to help bring down the numbers in Fraser Health. As Aaron MacArthur reports, they include dropping the age restriction for vaccinations in targeted neighborhoods and pop-up kiosks to encourage everyone to register for their shots. You're good with the left arm? As more people in more communities roll up their sleeves, the number of COVID cases continues to inch downward. While cases are falling everywhere, in Surrey, they're not coming down as fast as people would like. Hundreds more cases reported here than anywhere else in Metro Vancouver. Business leaders asking public health officials for a community-wide vaccination campaign. A hotspot approach doesn't work. We need a full citywide uh, approach. Surrey has been a focal point of cases since the beginning of the pandemic. There have been 34,000 cases reported here. In April alone, Surrey was responsible for more than 1,600 cases a week. Per capita, that works out to more than 20 per 100,000 people. Yet, community-wide vaccination remains impractical. 
It's a very different thing to target a community with hundreds of thousands of people versus a community with a few thousand people. While Surrey isn't getting mass vaccination, it is being prioritized. Teachers in the city were put at the front of the line, so were emergency workers. Now employees at grocery stores are being moved up the priority list, too. Huge sense of relief for our members working in this health region. For months, they have been on the front lines of the pandemic, exposed in more ways than most. Surrey is lagging behind other population centers when it comes to the number of people registered to get their shot. Fraser Health intends to solve that with pop-up kiosks in high traffic areas like shopping malls. In some cases, registration will be for same-day appointments. And places of worship will be used as hubs to convince people to enter the system. I do believe it's important to remove every barrier possible to ensure that everybody registers and gets immunized as quickly as possible. Fraser Health also increasing the number of high-priority neighborhoods to now include Guilford and Cloverdale. People 30 and older in almost every neighborhood in Surrey now eligible for a vaccine dose. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Keith Baldry joins us now with a closer look at the current COVID situation in Fraser Health. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen a number of business closures, Keith. Yeah, this hasn't got a lot of a lot of attention, excuse me. Uh, but another measuring stick of COVID-19 is how many businesses have been forced to close since April 9th when the public health order was changed to allow WorkSafe BC and health public health officials to go in and shut businesses down to three or more people tested positive. And you can see it's not just Surrey, but eight businesses in between April 25th and May 1st shut their doors as a result of this. That's putting a lot of people out of work. Langley with seven closures, Burnaby with three, Delta with three, Tri-Cities with two. And you see the, the cases on the right. Those cases there are far more than most municipalities in B.C. COVID-19 continues to be a scourge in Fraser Health. Their numbers far outperform or outmeasure other constituencies and municipalities elsewhere in B.C. There's the odd hotspot on a per capita basis. The Peace River continues to be a concern, but really it's Fraser Health. And in Fraser Health, it's Surrey where the problem is. Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about uh, what we heard at the briefing today. Dr. Henry was asked about the AstraZeneca supply. Mm -hmm. And if we're any closer to a decision on the possibility we might end up mixing and matching doses. Yeah, very interesting. So work continues to be done. St studies continue to be carried out, particularly in the United Kingdom. Can you mix AstraZeneca with a different vaccine? Keep in mind, it's not one of the messenger RNA vaccines, but Dr. Henry today is saying some of the initial research suggests it might even be better to mix AstraZeneca with another vaccine, but that decision has not been made final. It may be an advantage to have one of each of the types of vaccines that we have available now, but we don't know the answer to that yet. So we are watching those things very carefully. We have studies here in Canada that people in BC are taking part on, but the one that's farthest ahead is the one we've talked about in the UK. So we will be receiving some data, we hope from that, um, by the end of May as what it's looking like. So that will help us understand whether there's any advantages or disadvantages. So to sum up, it's been very encouraging the last two days, uh, Sophie, on the COVID front. Our daily case average continues to decline uh, on a seven-day rolling average. Our positivity rate continues to decline. Active cases continue to decline. And thankfully, the number of people in hospital and ICU continue to drop by significant numbers. Hopefully, that trend continues through the rest of the week. Let's keep it going. All right. Thanks, Keith. The, Van the Vancouver Park Board has uh, started work on a temporary separated bike lane through a parking lot at Kitts Beach. The board says the bike lane through the lot at the corner of Arbutus and Cornwall will reduce conflicts between cyclists, pedestrians and vehicles. 
The lot will lose about 50 of its 250 parking spots. The city says a bike counter on Point Grey Road counted more than 750,000 bikes on that route in 2020. The temporary changes are expected to be in place for about two years until a permanent separated cycling path is agreed on. Family and friends mourn a 12-year-old victim of the opioid crisis. They said that there was no help available for someone her age. A grieving mother's cautionary tale next on the News Hour. Coffee shop employees alleged racism in this incident caught on camera, but the charge recommended is not what they were expecting. That's coming up on the News Hour. And an electrifying ride to school. Why school districts are splurging on these zero emission buses later. Right now, though, a tragic but important story out of Victoria where a 12-year-old girl is one of the youngest victims of the opioid crisis. Her mother, who's fighting her own demons, was told there are no rehab facilities for children under the age of 14. And as Kylie Stanton reports, that's prompting a call for change. That's her school picture. It's beautiful. In grade 6 and just 12 years old. This is the face of the youngest person to die of a suspected fentanyl overdose in B.C. A parent's worst nightmare, now a reality for this mother. I was just in shock and like then the tears came, then it like started to hit that, that my daughter had passed away. Alia Thomas, who went by Allie, began experimenting with substances in the fall of 2019, smoking cigarettes and marijuana. But that quickly escalated to cocaine, meth and heroin. On the day she died, April 14th, she and an older friend had gone downtown to purchase drugs. They consumed them and went back to her friend's home. And she lay down in bed and she never woke up. Since November, Ali had overdosed three times, landing in Victoria General Hospital. Her mother, who also struggles with mental health and addiction, believes she was crying out for help. But aside from counsellors and outreach workers, there was none to be had. In B.C., there's no long-term rehabilitation treatment available for children under the age of 14. I don't think that she's too young to go to rehab. I think that she was too young to die. B.C.'s representative for children and youth agrees. And with the growing toxicity of the drug supply, the issue is one that can't be ignored. Definitely, and I would say it's not just for 12-year-olds, but 16-year-olds and 17- and 18-year-olds and young adults are also uh, facing gaps in services. While the provincial government has allocated funds to try and address this in its most recent budget, the opposition says it's building on a fragmented and inadequate system. More needs to be done, and it needs to be done in a comprehensive, overarching way. In the meantime, with more than five people dying of an overdose every day in B.C., it falls to parents to have the difficult conversations. Talk to your children, talk to your friends about it. Never do it alone. It's too late for Allie, but her mother hopes that by speaking out and sharing her story, others will be saved. Hopefully your death is not in vain. You're going to help so many kids and so many parents to be to be the best they can be and to, to live a full, beautiful life. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. And according to the BC Coroner's Service, fewer than two people per 100,000 under the age of 19 died of an illicit drug overdose so far this year. The majority of the OD deaths are men in the 50 to 59 age group, followed closely by those aged 30 to 39 and 40 to 49. Overall, nearly 500 British Columbians lost their lives to illicit drugs in just the first three months of 2021.
Up next, Canada's home-built icebreaker. Another 1,400 in our supply chain ac- across the uh, country who will, over to the life of the project, also work on the vessel. So this is a great day. How local expertise is going to help protect Canada's blue economy, creating hundreds of jobs. And password protection, the best advice to prevent you from getting hacked on World Password Day. Extra volume here northbound on King George Boulevard out of Surrey towards the Botello Bridge because of a three-car crash in the middle of the intersection at 128th Street. Northbound traffic is technically blocked, being rerouted back on using Bridgeview Drive. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Tristie Wilson in Global One, high above a crash in Surrey. Local shipbuilder C-SPAN has been selected to build a massive new icebreaker, 150 meters long, with accommodation for up to 100 crew and a range of 30,000 nautical miles. It will be critical to help protect Canada's interests in the north. And as Ted Chernecki shows us, it's a deal nearly a decade in the making. This is a solution that actually meets the needs of the Coast Guards. You can be forgiven for thinking you've heard all this before, because you have. Several times, in fact. In 2012, the then Harper Conservative government promised to build one polar-class icebreaker at C-SPAN shipyards in Vancouver. A couple of years ago, the Liberals quietly took it off the books, only to re-announce it today. But in what could be an election year, it announced two heavy icebreakers to be built concurrently, one in Davie Shipbuilding in Quebec, the other at C-SPAN. It's especially good news for the 1,400 folks at C-SPAN who will actually design and build this vessel, and an equivalent number, another 1,400 in our supply chain ac- across the uh, country. C-SPAN's property in North Vancouver was purposely built to construct a large polar icebreaker, as was promised more than a decade ago. Each 150-meter vessel will be designed to accommodate up to 100 personnel, travel a range of over 30,000 nautical miles, and able to navigate Canada's challenging Arctic waters with ease. When it comes to building icebreakers and the jobs they create, BC's done very well over the years. Of the eight heavy and medium-sized icebreakers currently in service with the Coast Guard, one of the two heavies, the Terry Fox, was built by Berard Yarrows and launched in 83. Of six medium-sized icebreakers, the Amundsen, built at Berard Dry Dock, launched in 79, the Henry Larson, versatile Pacific Shipyards, in 87, and the Pierre Radisson, Berard Dry Dock, 1978. So of the eight vessels, four were built in B.C. In fact, two of the other four were built in Norway. And as more ice melts every single year, we will likely see an increase in the usage of this Northwest Passage. There are numerous videos online predicting the Northwest Passage could become the next great trade route. The argument being that it's faster and cheaper for Asian ships of any size to go through Canadian waters to the eastern U.S. and Europe. Canada's Arctic is on the world stage like never before. The dynamics have changed. The environment has changed. The opening of the Northwest Passage and the international attention on Canada's Arctic makes this an urgent priority. Russia is already flexing its military muscle in the Arctic. C-SPAN expects to start design work immediately. Ted Chernecki, Global News. 
Today marks World Password Day, a day to promote better password habits. But security experts warn, given the number of passwords required on various accounts and websites these days, consumers need to do more than just make them strong and unique. Let's bring in Consumer Matters reporter Andrew with more. And Thanks, Sophie. Security experts say protecting your password is the single most important thing you can do to prevent your personal information from getting into the hands of cyber criminals. The reality is cyber criminals have become more sophisticated when it comes to gaining access to our passwords. Given the number of passwords that are required these days, security experts are recommending consumers use a password manager. A password manager is designed to generate and retrieve long, complex passwords so you don't have to memorize them all. The user only has to remember one master password when signing in. Password managers also use encryption to protect your passwords. Some computers already have them built in so they can be synchronized to your phone and other devices. As for the cost, some password managers are free and others require a fee. There are some good uh, tools out there. Uh, one's called LastPass. There's another one called OnePassword. There's one called Dashlane uh, and another one called Bitwarden. And all of them are available for varying degrees of small amounts of money or free. Some of them are free with a premium version. Some of them are about $10, $12 a year. And that way you can have hundreds of remarkably complex passwords that are pretty much unhackable. Almost every attack we see, even in these big companies where you see headlines of millions of dollars being stolen, comes down to poorly chosen passwords by a staff member at that organization that allowed a criminal to get in. Now, if you don't want to use a password manager or you don't have many online accounts, try and make your passwords as long, complex and unique as possible. Use uppercase and lowercase letters, numbers and special characters. Don't use common passwords like a family member's name or the name of your pet or birth years and never use the same password across multiple accounts. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, don't four, QWERTY. That. I don't recommend that one, Chris. QWERTY won't, won't, won't do it. Okay, <laughs> thank you very much, Ann. <laughs> All right, uh, straight ahead, a grieving widow speaks up about random gang violence. I don't want their sympathy. I don't want their empty words. The mistaken identity killing that took her husband and has her demanding a crackdown. And Kindred Farm facing closure, a special spot that rescues animals and saves people, needs saving itself. Flow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel, seeing minimal delays north and south, but there are delays during the overnight hours for maintenance with lane closures north and south. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Well, there has been a string of targeted gang-related shootings and murders, but police insist they are ready for anything. Now, the widow of a man murdered in a case of mistaken identity is adding her voice to the chorus of those asking why more isn't being done to stop the violence. Yeah, and as Jordan Armstrong reports, there is precedent like the high pressure and very public squeeze tactics police used on the notorious Bacon Brothers more than a decade ago. I don't want their sympathy. I don't want their empty words. I want their action. Her husband, an innocent victim of gang and gun violence. Nearly three years ago, Paul Bennett, a nurse and hockey dad, was murdered in his Surrey driveway in a case of mistaken identity. 
Now, after five brazen public shootings in less than a week, Darlene Bennett is imploring police to use bold tactics to stop the violence. Things need to change. There needs to be accountability. I want the public to understand that CFSU will do whatever we can in, in within our uh, authority and, and the powers that we have and our resources available. But the anti-gang agency won't talk specifics today. It's uncomfortable for them and that's unfortunate. Don't be a gangster and maybe you'll be able to go to a restaurant or a bar. So let's look back in time. In 2009, at the height of a gang war, Police were very public about their tactic of identifying and disrupting gang associates out for a night on the town. Just with the current situation, yeah, the violence no on the street, the guns, the stabbings and whatnot. Okay, you're okay. cool with that? No problem. Okay. That same year, cops had 24-7 visible surveillance on Abbotsford's notorious Bacon brothers. So much so, the youngest Bacon filed a harassment complaint. Jamie, just can't quit. Okay, yeah, we didn't talk to Abby tonight, so... Just making sure you're still here. We had to come up with some solutions. We were well on our way to be the murder capital of Canada in 08 and 09. Bob Rich was Abbotsford's police chief in that era. Their goal, make Abbotsford a crummy place to be a gangster. We started asking our businesses to stop serving these people. Uh, you know, go to the rental companies and say, please, don't rent them a car. Go to the bars. I'm sorry, these people should not be in your bar. We're kicking them out. We ask you not to let them back in. It worked for the gang establishment. But today's conflict is much more complex with violence often committed by young up-and-coming gangsters trying to make a name for themselves. Find these kids, figure out the ones that are at risk, involve the schools, involve the parents, involve the community, and give them positive choices. More intervention, more visible enforcement, whatever it takes to stop the bloodshed, says Darlene Bennett. But do it now before another innocent life is lost. No one deserves to die like that. No one. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. A new Chinese community policing centre is now open with the goal of restoring safety in the heart of Vancouver's historic Chinatown. A small pandemic-safe launch marked the opening of the centre that's operating out of 44 East Pender Street next to the Chinese Cultural Centre and Courtyard. The new location aims to re-establish a much-needed street-level policing presence in Chinatown, an iconic Vancouver community that has been hit hard by a spike in anti-Asian crime and the effects of homelessness. People actually, for a while, they all are scared to come down Chinatown. So that makes the uh, businesses even more difficult to survive. There are 11 community policing centers in Vancouver, but the Chinese Community Center was the first one when it opened its doors in its original location on Main Street back in 1992. Richmond RCMP are recommending a charge against one of the people involved in a confrontation at a Steveston coffee shop in late March. The manager confronted two customers who moved a table and chair, asking them to abide by COVID-19 rules. The manager says the couple became angry. As they left, the woman threw coffee on the ground and the empty cup at the manager's face, allegedly using a racist slur. Police have now wrapped up their investigation and forwarded the results to Crown, recommending a mischief charge against the woman. Well, the province is reporting its first case of that rare vaccine-induced blood clot disorder associated with the AstraZeneca shot. A woman in her 40s has been hospitalized with symptoms of the so-called VITT after receiving the vaccine. She is stable and receiving treatment in the Vancouver Coastal Health Region. 
The disorder affects about one in 100,000 people. Dr. Henry says symptoms can develop between day four and 28 after receiving the vaccine and can be treated when caught in time. A Metro Vancouver animal sanctuary that holds events for at-risk and special needs children and adults is being evicted from its home. New development is forcing it out, and as Linda Aylesworth reports, Kindred Farm has only a few months to find a new location. Cows give terrible interviews. But if Peanut could talk, she'd tell you how lucky she was to be rescued by Kindred Farm in South Surrey. Her mom had a bad leg and they shot her. Um, and then she needed to be bottle fed, which the farmer wasn't prepared to do. Barney the goat's only crime, being born a boy on a dairy farm. He would more than likely have been put down. Nobody wants a male goat. Hey, Frida, we got a salad for you. Frida the turkey escaped from a factory farm. And Badger the quarter horse, who was injured early in life. He can't be ridden. So he's considered quite worthless. He would have gone to slaughter. All the animals here were rescued, which makes them uniquely qualified to do some rescuing of their own. We purposely pair them with children, teens and adults to help people heal from their trauma. That is what Kindred Farm is really about, helping people like 19-year-old Lizzie. Just being here with the animals, it was a form of therapy for me without having someone sit across from me and tell me that something's wrong with me. And Sarah, who found that being with the horses helped her to feel safe and grounded. It was helping with my anxiety and depression at the time. And I'm feeling less depressed now because of the farm. But now it's Kindred Farm that's in need of rescuing. A condo development is moving in, and they have until late September to move off the rented property. We'd like to not rent again. We don't want to be vulnerable. So we're asking for donation of land or to raise over a million dollars. I know that it helps so many people. So yeah, it would just, it would be such a shame if it was to end just because they couldn't find another place. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Still ahead, solving a 176-year-old mystery. He was married. He had at least five children. How Canadian researchers were able to identify the remains of one of the sailors lost on the Franklin expedition. And coming up, the incredible story of how a man survived a grizzly bear attack in the Shuswap. A black bear that was captured near train tracks in East Vancouver on Wednesday has now been released back into the wild. The animal was first spotted around noon Wednesday near the PNE and was later seen here on the tracks near Gastown, where it was tranquilized. The CSO says the location where the bear was released today was chosen to give it the best possible chance to survive and thrive. Happy ending for that bear. And on the topic of bears, a North Okanagan man is lucky to be alive tonight after surviving a grizzly bear attack. Global's Travis Lowe has more on what happened and why conservation says the bear won't be destroyed. It's not a tale many live to tell. The bear made contact with the male, the adult male, uh, and in three separate occasions, the bear was on the male. But a Shuswap area man has managed to survive being attacked 
by a grizzly bear. Total melee in, in only a couple of minutes. A couple of minutes that probably lasted a lifetime for the man who was walking his dogs on his own property just east of Malacquah Tuesday afternoon when the attack occurred. One of his dogs ran ahead of him and disappeared into the bush. A couple of seconds later, he heard a, a yelp and a, and a little bit of a scuffle. And next thing he knew, he saw the dog come barreling out of the bush and a grizzly bear right on his tail. And the dog came right back to the, to the adult male with the bear right in tow. The grizzly bit the man on his leg several times before his dogs were able to send the Bruin packing. But not before the big bear gave the man one final reminder. The B.C. is bear country. He said it stood up. It was about six and a half to seven feet. The man sustained minor injuries that were treated in hospital, and he was eventually released to return home. My sympathies go out to the person that's been injured. This would have been a very frightening encounter. Isnardi says this attack is a powerful reminder for everyone in British Columbia that... It's really important that we keep our pets under control when we're in wildlife country. The conservation office's predatory attack team was called out to assess the incident, and it was deemed that the attack was defensive in nature. It was decided that the bear will not have to be destroyed. Travis Lowe, Global News, near Malacquah. Wow, bear just doing its thing. Mm-hmm. Can't, can't fault it for that. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's take a look at the weather forecast as we get a little closer to the weekend, Christy. Thanks so much. Yeah, so we had a really intense rain move through North Vancouver around 4 o'clock, and we're seeing those bands across the region. They're sort of coming and going, but off in the distance, you can see the blue sky. So we're in behind the cold front, but we still do have more rain in the forecast. I want to show you these photos first before we talk a little bit about that forecast. Uh, this is from Vanderhoof. Jasmine sending us these photos. She said, uh, it didn't rain last night. Instead, the temperatures dropped to minus 5, and I forgot I left my sprinkler on. So it was like frozen in Vanderhoof in Jasmine's backyard. Thank you for sharing these uh, beautiful photos with us. Must have been a a beautiful uh, sight for the little kids to play in. Thanks, Jasmine. All right, so uh, the cold front is going to swing inland. We still do have a chance of rain overnight. You can hear the rain coming down once again here in North Vancouver. Tomorrow afternoon, though, that chance of rain drops off, but then it picks up again on Saturday. So I am anticipating breaks of blue sky later tomorrow, but in the meantime, overnight tonight and through much of the morning hours tomorrow, we're going to see anywhere from 5 to 15 millimeters of rain. Bulk of that out through northeastern Metro Vancouver, Tri-Cities, Pitt Meadows area. So spotty conditions tomorrow, again, drier later in the day with those breaks of blue sky. And then Saturday, we're back to mainly cloudy skies. And we are expecting the showers to ramp up on Saturday, especially earlier in the day. So the first half of the weekend is looking a little wet. Risk of thunderstorms across southern BC. What we're going to see is instability in behind this cold front. So watch for the isolated cells rolling through the region, even through the Fraser Valley tomorrow and then for our region breaks a blue sky saturday showers but it looks like things uh, clear out just in time for mother's day which is fantastic and speaking of mothers look at these baby little goslins thank you to um Sylvester Law for sharing that photo with us or um, video with us. Mm -hmm. The rain is coming down here. I don't know if you can hear it, but uh, any minute I'm going to get a real dump on my head from this this umbrella here. I could hear it picking up in the background there. I was going to ask, but yes, okay, find cover. Thanks very much, Christy. Well, the next generation of BC school buses is rolling out on Vancouver Island. 
Oh, they're so quiet. These are zero-emission electric buses unveiled today by the Nanaimo Ladysmith School District. It's two buses will hit the road by the end of the school year. Other e-buses are already running in Souk. The buses cost $350,000 each, compared to about $150,000 for a diesel bus. But the government says each bus saves about 17 tons of greenhouse gas emissions every year and needs far less maintenance. As part of a provincial government program, 13 school districts have purchased a total of 18 electric buses. You know what the wheels on the bus do? They go round and round. They go round and round. All right. Squire. And don't the wipers go whoosh, whoosh, whoosh? <laughs> That's, That's right, they do. <laughs> yeah, they do. All right, what you got, Squire? Well, um, of course, the other day we were talking about how uh, the Canucks want to move their farm team to Abbotsford. Still not a done deal yet. Some things have to be worked out. But according to the mayor, the city of Abbotsford is ready. Our community is so excited about the, what they've heard over the last 48 hours. And this would be the home of the something Abbotsford something. We don't know what they're going to be called yet, but they'll be the Canucks farm team. Cool. Also tonight, one of Canada's most enduring maritime mysteries finally solved. Squires here with sports. Is scoring a goal every time you shoot the puck going to get the Canucks into the playoffs, Squire? <laughs> well, if Montreal doesn't win any more games, that would help as well. They actually lost tonight in Montreal, so there's still a mathematical chance. But I have to say many citizens of Canucks Nation have no problem if Vancouver's losing streak just keeps on going to the end of the season because the Canucks are all but mathematically out of the playoffs. And points in the standings means, or I should say, Less points in the standings means a better draft position this summer. But, of course, the coaches of the Vancouver Canucks and the players don't think that way. They're tired of being embarrassed. So tonight, they decided to embarrass Edmonton goalie Miko Koskinen. Every shot he faced went in before they pulled him. Here's the first one. That's a nice move by Nils Hoaglander. Look at that. Very impressive. So now it's one nothing for the Canucks. Then how about this? Very first goal in his second NHL game, Jack Rathbone. Shot is blocked. Harlick's shot is blocked. Rathbone finishes up. And after you see the goal, look at the smile on his face. And it's the first career goal. I think that kid's happy. They say he's a guy who loves to be there. 2-0 for Vancouver. So that's two shots, two goals. Uh, this is Travis Hamanick. Three shots, three goals. Three goals on three shots as that one went off the blocker and Koskinen. Having a nightmare night. And here's the fourth goal on four shots. This is Jace Harlock. And watch Koskinen's reaction after this. Mm -hmm. It's going so bad he can't even break his stick on the first hit. Took him two to get it. But the Oilers have scored two since then. They changed goalies, obviously, 4-2 now in the, uh, well, in the intermission of the first period. Well, the American Hockey League has voted in favor of allowing the Vancouver Canucks to move their farm team from Utica, New York, to Abbotsford. Now all that's needed is a deal with Abbotsford itself to play in their arena. Uh, but after a bad experience being the Flames farm city a few years ago, Abbotsford wants a better deal for itself this time around. More than a decade ago, the city of Abbotsford found out the hard way that BC hockey fans were not interested in the Calgary Flames farm team. 
and for five seasons between 2009 and 2014, the city swallowed around $12 million in losses. There won't be that kind of sweet deal this time around as negotiations with the city and the Aquilini family continue. They've been tough negotiators, but I think we have been too, our team, and uh, our council is happy with where we are. I can't fully unpack uh, what the uh, agreement is, but uh, we'll be there fairly, sh fairly soon. Let's face it, this is the only way minor league hockey works in Abbotsford, with fans able to watch the Canucks' future unfold live at ice level. In the past, when the Canucks farm team visited Abbotsford, it was standing room only. That buzz and interest will be good for business. It's going to be a real shot in the arm financially for uh, the service industry in particular. So, no, there's, uh, there's tremendous excitement uh, in the air. Abbotsford's always wanted the Canucks farm team. The Canucks always wanted to move them there. Now it's become a reality. It's been a couple of years in the making, but here we are. And uh, sometimes you just got to be patient and work the plan. And I think it's going to be a win-win for both of us. Gold medal game, Canada-Russia, world under 18s. Here's a good way to win. Get another Russian player on your bench. There you go. Join us, won't you? Pardon me, Coolman's on the oh, guess what? Another great Connor Bedard goal. Look at that. Again. The move, the backhand, the goal. 2-2 after one period. He is amazing. In uh, soccer, set pieces and free kicks, or set pieces like free kicks and corner kicks, are kind of like foul shots in basketball. You don't want to miss too many of them. And for the most part, the Vancouver Whitecaps have been pretty good at set pieces this season. This will be Gutierrez on the left foot with the ball in towards Rose, and the Whitecaps lead it! Three matches into their season, and set pieces have been key to the Caps' early success. They've scored twice on free kicks, both impressive efforts, while their other goal came via penalty kick. It's an area that we spent a lot of work in, an area that the staff, everybody here has spent video, in training, preparing, uh, sharing clips with the players. Uh, we spend a lot of time on that. So it's good that that work is, bring, uh, is, is being brought onto the field. Now it's an opportunity for David Caicedo. It's Caicedo off the line. Vancouver goes in search of their first official goal from open run of play on Saturday when it hosts Montreal. They've hit a few posts and had a goal called back, but throughout their first three games, they've looked capable of mounting an attack. Maintaining that style of play remains a work in progress. Now, our next step is not only have set plays as a weapon, but when we have so much of the ball in the opponent's half, how do we go about it? How do we create for us? And that's an area where we need to, to, to grow still. Jay Janowar, Global Sports. Blue Jays. Oh, wait a minute. No, that's Phil Mickelson. That's not a Blue Jay. That's Phil Mickelson. And I'll tell you something. The other day he said he hasn't been focused enough. He was focused today in the first round of the Wells Fargo from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. He has the lead. Had eight birdies. Seven under 64. Leads by two shots. It's been a while since he's won on the regular PGA Tour. He does dominate, though, on the um, Seniors Tour when he goes to that side. All right. The Blue Jays did win their game today by the uh, score of 10-4 to 4 over Oakland. There you go. All right. Thanks, Squire.
All right, here's Sarah McDonald now with a preview of Global News at 11. Sarah? Chris, Sophie, we're following a serious crash in Surrey that's caused the closure of a major intersection. One of the drivers involved fleeing on foot and later found in hospital will have the latest. Plus, escorted leave granted to one of the province's most notorious child killers. The man who killed Heather Thomas given new freedoms by a judge. We have response from his victim's family. And Squire joins us with sports. That's coming up at 11, guys. All right, Sarah, thanks. Up next, DNA solves part of a puzzle nearly 180 years old. 176 years after setting sail, the DNA of a crew member of the ill-fated Franklin expedition has been linked to a family member in South Africa. And a professor at Trent University in Peterborough helped make it all happen. Global's Jessica Nisnik has the story. The Franklin Expedition is known as one of the greatest maritime disasters. 129 Englishmen died in Canada in search of a northern passageway for trading between continents. One of those men was Warrant Officer John Gregory. He was an engineer on one of the two ships. We know that he was born in Lancashire, England. He was married. He had at least five children, one of whom was an infant. And he was in his 40s when he died. But like many of the rest of the men, Gregory's remains were never retrieved. That changed almost a century and a half later in 1993, when a burial ground was found on King William Island in Nunavut. And then in 2013, my colleague Doug Stenton excavated that burial, and he removed the remains of these three individuals and sent them to Trent for analysis. By that point, Keenly Side had already been researching the failed expedition for a decade. So she took those remains and others previously discovered to the lab. Using DNA from teeth and bone samples, Keenly Side collaborated with colleagues at Lakehead University and the University of Waterloo. We were able to obtain DNA profiles from 41 bones and teeth, representing 27 individuals. From there, they put a call out to find descendants of the men from the expedition. And a 38-year-old man from South Africa answered it. The DNA from his cheek swab matched Gregory's. So he is the great, great, great grandson of John Gregory. Although Keenly Side gives most of the credit to her colleagues Stephen Frapietro and Doug Stanton, her decades of work are nothing to sneeze at. And that work will continue, especially as more remains and artifacts are found. Between 2014 and 2016, both ships, the Erebus and the Terror, were discovered during Parks Canada research missions. Jessica Nisnik, Global News. I've always thought about that. If someone said to me, hey, do you want to go for a ride in the Arctic on a boat named the Terror? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> no, I'm good. Thanks. I'm yeah. going to pass on that. I'm going to stay right here. i got a family of five mouths I need to feed. You know. <laughs> exactly. Amazing stuff. All right. Thanks very much for watching, everybody. Have a great night. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Good night, all. Thank you.